who's your daddy? <laughs> you might be surprised to find out the answer. Happy Father's Day, Aldwin. <laughs> who's your daddy tonight? <laughs> I got that. Uh, Tokyo and uh, gay marriage. Uh, your tongue can feel anything. It's the weirdest story. Wait till you hear it. I got that and more coming up. I'm Jay Sheldon. Welcome to the Jay Sheldon Show. Happy Monday, everybody. Oh, yeah. We're live across uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch.tv, and, of course, our favorite platform, Rumble.com. Please check us out over there, and please do subscribe on whatever channel you're watching us on. Follow or subscribe. JJ, yo, good to see you tonight. All right, JJ and Aldwin, our two favorite people, are jumping in on the stream, wherever you may be. Also, of course, we're a podcast. The audio part of our show goes out about half an hour after we're done with our live stream. And uh, it's the same show. Thank you to all of our podcast listeners, all those of you who follow and subscribe. On whatever platform, uh, we're on Apple, Spotify, Google, Radio Public, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, Geo7 in India. Got a big audience over there in India. Thank you, folks, over there. Uh, namaste. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're we cooking with gas. It's a Monday. Oh, it is a Monday. Uh, yeah, so we got a big show tonight. Lots going on. And, of course, in the last half of our show, we'll continue reading The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. We're in this really cool murder mystery right now. Uh, however, one of the first things we always do on this show is to update you on this little lady. Miko update. Yes, indeed. The Miko update. There she is. <laughs> she's doing great right now. She's sleeping out in the front uh, porch, uh, enjoying a rather cool night here in Malaysia. We had a not so bad day. A little rain this afternoon moved in and then tonight it's been quite cool. So... We've had that kind of weather pattern going on for a, a little bit. We did have some fun yesterday, though. Let me show you this. Hang on. Let me uh, switch. I think I got I to gotta make it bigger. How do I? Ah, there we go. Okay. I bought her this pool. You see the pool here? It's not inflatable. It, like, unfolds, and it's got a plastic bottom. It's all watertight. Over on the edge here, you can't quite see it in the video. There is a, uh, a drain plug takes a long time to fill up. It's quite good size. You see, that's my arm hanging out there with the hose. Now, she would not go in the pool. She loves water. When we took her to the ocean, she jumps right in. She loves it. She absolutely goes nuts playing with the hose. When you're squirting water, she will chase it for hours, but she won't get in the pool. So I had an idea. I had an idea that I would combine the pool, which was now mostly full of water. And watch what happens. I'm spraying the water. She's going nuts, but she can't quite get at it. And I'm making sure that the she's she's going after the water. And coax, I'm coaxing her in. Now watch. She can't figure out how to get to the spray. She loves the spray nozzle. She goes crazy, but she, now watch. She got no choice. You want to get the spray nozzle? You got to get in the pool. <laughs> She's a good jumper, too. Uh, yeah, you should get one. They're pretty cheap. That wasn't too bad. I think I got it at uh, Lazada or Shopee. There you go. Watch. Bonk. She climbs right in. And finally, she's in the pool. Not for long. 
After she boink, she jumps back out. Now she does this three or four more times, but we had a blast. She had such a good time with this uh, this pool, and uh, she loves the water. And uh, yeah, so anyway, <laughs> she got thoroughly wet. We had to dry her off, and uh, all was right with the world. So cool beans. That was how I spent my uh, my Father's Day, <laughs> having a lot of fun with uh, with my daughter. Yeah. So that brings us right on to our first topic tonight. Who's your daddy? Not me, I hope. Well, if you want to know who your daddy is, don't ask a DNA test. These are the strangest stories. I put the links in our show notes tonight. As always, our show notes is the description down below. You just expand that. You can click on them while you're watching the show or listening to the podcast. It should open in a separate window so you won't lose the show. Uh, But this from BigThink.com, cool site, and I encourage you to go read the whole article. Um, It's rather interesting. Uh, Man ordered to pay $65,000 in child support for a kid that isn't his. Father hopes to change state paternity law after losing custody of his biological daughter to another man. The headlines are lurid, seem rather nonsensical, actually. How can a man bear financial responsibility for a child that isn't his? How could he be denied legal paternity of a child that he conceived? The gist of these stories is that such outcomes are not only ludicrous, but they are insanely unjust. These kind of stories not only appear in the mainstream media, but they provide fodder for men's rights websites, have even inspired legislation to make DNA testing mandatory at birth, although none of those have actually become a law yet. History suggests these kind of cases aren't all that strange. In fact, they follow a long tradition in which paternity was not necessarily a biological one, but a social and legal relationship. I did not know this. It was only in the 80s when DNA testing really kind of emerged and uh, promises to reveal the actual biological fathers. You know, Morty did a, had a whole career based on DNA testing. I think he's still doing it, if I'm not mistaken. But for most of human history, this kind of technology didn't exist, and it wasn't missed. Paternity, the father of the child, was based on presumption, deduced from social behaviors and legal conventions. You were a father by tradition. Historically, the father was defined by marriage. Pater est quem nepotum. I said that badly, I'm sure. It's Roman, Latin. Uh, The Roman formulation, the father is he whom marriage indicates, even in circumstances when he could not be. The tradition carried forward over the centuries. English common law in the 17th century, for example, if a husband was located anywhere within the four seas of the king of England At the time of the wife's conception, he was legally presumed to be the father of the child. 
Sydney John, hey, good to see you in on the stream tonight. Hello there. Round of high hoes to you. Anyway, children born out of wedlock, those uh, in civil law tradition, uh, deduced paternity from a man's actions or public reputation. That's how they determined, the courts determined who was the father of the child, not a DNA test before there was such a thing as a DNA test. The father was he who cohabitated with the mother or kissed the baby in public, the man whom a neighbor saw paying the wet nurse. Paternity was performative. A more muddled modern landscape since the dawn of uh, DNA technology. And according to some observers, reproductive technologies like surrogacy, egg donations, have kind of disrupted the certainty of the Roman dictum on maternity. After all, uh, maternal identity is not so obvious when the gestational mother who births the child and the genetic one whose egg creates it could these days be two different people. Really, if you think about it, you could have a surrogate mother with the egg from another woman, with the sperm from a third person, and that person does not necessarily have to be the husband of the pregnant woman. So there might also be another husband. You could have four people involved in the creation. So who is the father? Now, DNA was supposed to make biological paternity a certainty. And yet, the older reasoning, long-defined paternity, Jim Schultz liked the stream. Hey, Jim, good to see you in here tonight. Um, the older reasoning of, you know, who was the who was living with the mother, who was taking care financially of the, the child and the mother uh, before DNA tests. Today, family law in the U.S. and other places continues to recognize non-biological lines of reasoning. A man's behavior, intent, the nature of the relationship with the mother, stability in a pre-existing parent-child relationship, all those criteria beyond biology may define the father in the court systems. So it's weird. And you think that's weird? It gets weirder. <laughs> I, the second link in our show notes tonight, after our Miko merchandise, where you can pick up uh, things like, you know, ball caps and hoodies and T-shirts and coffee mugs for the show. They all have Miko on them, by the way. But uh, you, can, uh, you can check out the links. The second link is equally weird. It is called the dark side of DNA. How genetic tests expose family secrets and why they're not perfect look i have uh you know by the way if you, if you want to get a hold of me you can either send me a pm on any of my social media you can also send me an email i always let you know we put our email out there because we love to hear from you i answer all my emails you just send an email to show at jsheldon.com s-h-o-w show at jsheldon.com you want to give me uh ideas of things to talk about you want to make comments you want to say you're an idiot get off the air uh, i don't care whatever you want uh just you know you can send me an email show at jsheldon.com anyway since i have my own dot com you can imagine the kind of spam email i get i have tons of spam in my normal email 
every day I go through click, 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 block, block, block. One of the things I constantly get spam emails from are these sites that offer to give you a DNA test to show you your history. Well, that's fun until you find out about some of your family's strange secrets. Take a closer look in this article in our show notes at some of the rather shocking stories of DNA tests gone wrong. Just so you know, if you uh, okay, if you're curious about your heritage, you can always take up one of these 23andMe or Ancestry DNA offers and take a closer look at your background, your history, your family history. But there is a dark side to these online genetic tests that uh, one out of every 25 American adults have access to detailed genetic information, and by all accounts, the numbers are going up. In fact, the major DNA testing sites explicitly warn their users about the possibility that some of the information unearthed may not be helpful. You may discover unexpected facts about yourself or your family when using the service. Ancestry.com's privacy page has this warning. Once discoveries are made, we can't undo them. Granted, these situations are rare, but when they occur, they have life-altering consequences. So, this article from HealthyWay.com, the link's in our show notes, uh, looked at some of the more strange incidents of people who got their DNA stuff and it didn't turn out so good for them. A woman learns she has more in common with her husband than she anticipated. Uh, uh, she and her husband were in a vacation in Nassau uh, and they did this DNA test thing uh, you have new DNA relatives. The relative in question was her husband, Mark. He was her third cousin. They had no idea. Now, before you get all creeped out, it's important to know a third cousin doesn't really have significantly higher risk of any birth abnormalities or anything. Uh, totally unrelated uh, people. Uh, one Icelandic study showed that a third or fourth cousin couple's uh, tend to be well-suited biologically and typically have more kids than other couples, but still freak them out to find out they were third cousins. A woman gets a DNA test for Christmas and loses her sense of identity. This uh, Linda Ketchum from Glendale, California, she got a test from her husband as a Christmas gift, she wasn't expecting much, much. She just wanted to trace back her uh, heritage. You know, I, Aldwin says I might do a DNA test. I've always thought about that. I thought it'd be fascinating because I'm, my heritage is very rojock. It's a mix of just a little bit of everything. I've got uh, French, Irish, Welsh, Scottish, a little American Indian, Native American. Uh, there's just a whole mishmash of, uh, of the, my background. And I, I never 100% knew what it was. And I would love to find out. But now I've read this article, I'm not so sure. She discovered she had no biological link to her father. Instead, she had numerous connections to Hispanic people in the site's database. She says, at first, I didn't believe it. But then I kept rechecking and realized, 
Oh my God, does this mean I'm Hispanic? Her real biological father apparently was a man of Hispanic uh, descent. As both of her parents were deceased, she had nowhere to turn for answers. All these years, she says, I thought I was German on my dad's side, but all of a sudden it dawned on me, my dad wasn't my dad. I had an entirely different ethnicity. Weird. As CNBC anchor receives shocking information, winds up writing a book, uh, journalist Bill Griffith in 2012 took a DNA test, hoping to learn about his European ancestors. And uh, he was extremely proud of his family. When his cousin asked him to take part in this testing, he happily agreed. Um, that test turned out a very deep, dark family secret. He's part of the article, so you'll probably know where this is going. The test showed that Griffin had no biological relation to his late father. When he received word via email, he was crushed. My body responded before my brain could. He wrote in his memoir, The Stranger in My Genes. It's the name of his book. I experienced a strange sensation of floating, and I could no longer feel the chair I was sitting in or the blackberry I was holding. My breathing became labored and shallowed. I heard a roaring in my ear like ocean waves crashing off in the distance. At first, he denied the results, insisting the company had tested his DNA, had made some mistake. He refused to accept the reality, but the truth set in. His mother had had an affair which she had hidden from her family for decades. Eventually, he decided to confront her with the information, and uh, apparently um, she took it like a champ. She admitted she'd made a mistake when she was younger, and that was that. These days, he's at peace with his family history and doesn't discuss the matter. Like I said, there is a dark side to these DNA tests, uh, there's more and more. There's a whole ton. You'll see as I scroll up here, there's a ton of these stories. Woman finds out a secret about her family, but decides to do some investigating. It's just absolutely incredible. You got to check out the article. The whole thing is in our show notes tonight. So uh, do uh, do give that a shot. Take a look and uh, read more about it. Maybe do that before you put that little Q-tip in your mouth and swirl it around, stick it in the test tube and Send it off for an investigation. <laughs> oh, man. Hang on, coffee break time. Mm. Yes, I'm drinking coffee at uh, 20 after 10 at night, okay? Sue me. Hey, Japan, Tokyo, good on you. Uh, this is Pride Month, so we always include one of these little uh, things in here. In fact, we did a whole segment on drag queens couple shows ago or maybe the last show tokyo set to issue same-sex partnership certificates one of the first asian countries to do that uh, i believe thailand was the first if i'm not mistaken but more and more people are coming to their senses the tokyo metropolitan government is set to begin issuing partnership certificates to same-sex cu uh, sex couples coming up in november uh, they approved the related ordinance wednesday just Last Wednesday, it's aimed at promoting a more inclusive society where certificate holders can receive better services. Members of an advocacy group held a news conference, Moda Mamiko. Mamiko. 
who's raising a child with her partner, said she hopes the new system will help to change society. A specially appointed professor at Waseda University, Robert Campbell, who is openly gay, expressed hope that partnership certificates would be a driving force in helping more people to understand sexual minorities instead of just dismissing them out of hand, and applications will start to be accepted, according to officials there, beginning October 11th. So, kudos to you, good on you, Tokyo, and here's to more Asian countries finally waking up. Kyoto was the first city to have the partnership program, so Tokyo must be the second. Really? I did not know that. And Kyoto is my favorite place on the planet. My dream city, which I have yet to visit. But, uh, wow, good news. I am glad to hear that. All right. Makes my tongue tickle. I said that because it's an awful attempt at a segue to our next story. Uh, There's a site I follow. It's very funny. Have you heard about the church of the Pastafarians? It's a joke site. It's a bunch of folks who are pretty much just atheists and they're kind of doing a a making fun and and a send-up of religious beliefs uh the pastafarians believe in the spaghetti god and and there's anyway even evangelical pastafarianism is the site it's on facebook they post some very funny stuff look if you're not a snowflake and you're not yes the flying spaghetti monster loves you aldwin excellent (laughs) you got it That's it, the flying spaghetti monster. Uh, anyway, if, if you're not uh, easily offended or a complete snowflake and, you know, mm, uh, you got to check this site out because it's very funny. But in addition to their wacky send-up stuff they post, they post some really weird stuff that kind of goes, yeah, that's kind of true. And this is one of them. I I know that's a picture of uh, of the guy from Harry Potter. I forget his name. Anyway, it, it, look just again, folks on the podcast. I got to read this because it's a visual. Your tongue, your tongue, eh, this thing, your tongue knows exactly how everything you look at will feel. Now, stay with me. You try it. Take a look if, if, you're, if you have a table leg near you. Look at that table leg and imagine what it would feel like on your tongue. And you can exactly imagine what that would feel like if you put your tongue on it. Or imagine licking a football. In your brain... Your tongue is telling your brain what that would feel like, and you can imagine exactly what it would feel like. Or the couch, or a coffee mug, or a mouse, or a handphone, or a headphone stand. Whatever it is you look at and you think, what would that feel like if I put my tongue on it? You can sense what it would feel like. Isn't that freaky? That is just the weirdest thing (laughs) I can't stop thinking about this, and I know this is stupid, but it's so weird. You've never actually licked any of those things, I hope. But your tongue can imagine it. Your tongue knows 
<laughs> it knows. And the, the meme is, what kind of sorcery is this? It's so true, and it's so weird. The more you think about it, just pick any object within your view right now and imagine what it would feel like to, to lick it. And your brain knows exactly, right? Am I right? Flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, look, I promised you we'd cover the weird stuff on this show. Am I delivering or what? Huh? Huh? Yeah. I don't even like spaghetti and meatballs anyway, Aldwin says. <laughs> I'm a big fan of spaghetti and meatballs, and I make a kick-ass spaghetti sauce. So there you go. All right. What else have we got here? Oh, this is kind of a serious one. I saw this headline come up. It's from soyachinchow.com. Links in our show notes. And it's a little scary. You know, virtually no one uses this stupid damn MySedatra app, this tracking bullcrap that they made us, forced us to use. Like no one ever anywhere in the whole country uses this thing anymore. I've got to bet the users have gone like from millions to what in, you know, 10 people every day, maybe. We went to Damen Mall here in Malaysia yesterday. I think it was yesterday. And there's a security guard at the entrance before the, you know, touch and go gate has a little sign. And you have to show him your vaccine thing on your MySedatra. I haven't even opened this stupid app in like months because nobody uses it anymore. It's useless anyway. But uh, Zane, lasagna extremist. Yes, pastafarians for life, lasagna extremist. Anyway, here's this security guard. He's just doing his job. It's not his fault. But this idiot mall, and I'm not going back there if this is the way they're going to be so stupid are requiring you to show your vaccine passport on your useless MySedatra app. So, there you go. I don't know why. But anyway, that leads us nicely into my next story from soyachinchow.com. Website offering personal data allegedly obtained from JPN and MySedatra surfaces online. Now, they've blurred out a big part of this picture, but this is the website somebody found. Now, before you go crazy about this in your data leak, while it is, I'm sure, still out there somewhere, apparently the site has been shut down. But Malaysia has seen an incredible rise in the leaks of data over the last couple of years, and now uh, they've so far been limited to rather hard-to-find places on the Internet. Uh, over the weekend a Twitter user revealed that a new website had cropped up on the open internet that allowed anyone to look up the personal details of almost any Malaysian. Kid you not, Twitter user Radzi1112 had tweeted out, there's an open source intelligence tool on the net that apparently lets you search the personal data of any Malaysian. You can get their my card number, their address, their voting details, phone number, vehicle ownership history, even the JPJ, that's the like this traffic police department sort of, and the police summons history. Uh, he claims the website was using the same JPN database that leaked out a few weeks back. Here's the tweet. 
All you need is someone's name and maybe birth year, and you can verify they're working for the Malaysian police and or the military. Uh, Wow, it's an operational security S-show, if you know what I mean. Our national defense just got effed. I'm trying to be family-friendly here. Look, at there's a screenshot of some of the details. Most of the information requires you to have an account, and you're going to have to fork up some fees, uh, which gets you stuff like their Mysodatra information, which would show you their uh, vaccine passports, things like that. Uh, the report from says also indicates you could unlock additional details for as low as $1.50 U.S., which is about 663 in ringgit. Uh, you'll have to pay that much to get the name and career information for a specific phone number. And when you create an account, you can also upgrade. Now, it's quite an upgrade. They're upper tier for you know access to about every piece of information they've stolen is 10,000 USD. Yeah, about 44,000 ringgit. Higher tiers apparently give you the option to also remove any information including yours, from the database. This is scary stuff. Uh, He stumbled across the website going through the open source intelligence community and found a suspicious Twitter account, seemingly had been dormant since 2011, but suddenly began tweeting about the website. Zane says, family friendly, next time you feel like swearing, you should angrily shout, shiver me timbers. (laughs) Arr. All right. They found posts in the online forum dating back to uh, about June of 2022, uh, June 7th. So not that long ago, just like, uh, what, 13 days ago. Uh, There's another screenshot from the site. And apparently, like I said, uh, the site was later taken down on June 12th. No information to who took it down. But apparently the website no longer exists. That's the good news. The bad news is that information's out there somewhere. Somebody's got a hold of it. And the chances are if that website was taken down, the next one is out there somewhere. We just haven't found it yet. And that means all of your information, Malaysians, all of it, where you work, what your address is, who you voted for, what your health status is, your IC number, it's all out there. That is a problem. Shiver me, Timbers. Very, very scary stuff. Wow. All right. Hey, Zane. Zane is in the street. Yes, Zane. I hope you're still with us because I'm sharing one of your posts that I thought was so cool. Uh, This, uh, a few days ago, Zane shared this. He's in our show tonight. He's hanging out in the audience there. So thank you for this, Zane. This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Two men led a team of 80 people who spent five years collecting 1.2 million golden orb spiders. Golden orb spiders create this silk, which is a golden color. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, they collected 1.2 million golden orb spiders milked them for their silk, and created the rarest textile on earth. Take a look at this. That cape 
is a golden silk cape made entirely from the silk from this little bugger right here, a golden orb spider. Look at that. And look at the size of this thing. There's a model wearing it. Again, podcast listeners, sorry, check out the link in our show notes. It is there. You can check out Zane's uh, post. Thank you for sharing that, Zane, because it fascinated me. This short little story, but unbelievable. And the process, five years, 1.2 million golden orb spiders to create enough silk to make this one-of-a-kind, probably invaluable. I don't think you could put a price on this thing. That is amazing. Yeah. Alden says, even Spider-Man couldn't do something like that. <laughs> You're exactly right. All right, we got to do one more story, and then we're going to move on to our book tonight. And uh, we always end with a good news story of one form or another. Yeah, money is right, JJ. Can you imagine what something like that would be valued? I, I don't think you could put a value on it. I really don't. All right, this is not a Malaysian story. This is a story uh, beyond that. Women should never give up. That is according to a climber, a mountain climber, a female mountain climber, who has conquered Mount Everest for the 10th time. Unbelievable. Women can achieve anything they want to. And this was proven recently by Lakpa Sherpa, who climbed Mount Everest for the 10th time, she is 48 years old. She's Nepalese. She completed her recent climb, which was reported by her brother and confirmed by Nepalese officials, making her the first woman to accomplish it. There she is with uh, some of her gear, packing her bags before she leaves for a trek. Uh, she last made the 8,848.86 meter ascent in 2018. Quoting her here, she says, I felt like I'd achieved my dream when I reached Everest Summit for the first time. I thought to myself, no more just being a housewife. <laughs> I felt like I'd changed Sherpa culture. Uh, the status of Sherpa women and Nepali women. I enjoy being outside of my home and I wanted to share that feeling with all women. Uh, Lakpa, was also chosen by the BBC as one of its 100 most inspirational and influential women of 2016. News of her 10th summit. Ten times she's been up and down that incredible mountain. The news was broken by her brother, Mingma Gelu Sherpa, who said she had reached the top at 6.15 Greenwich Mean Time. Nepali tourist official... Bhishma Kumar Batari confirmed the report. Wow. She got to really love mountain climbing. That is such an incredible accomplishment. And as she said in the beginning of the article, women can indeed do anything they set their minds to. Wow. Her hard work and achievement, yet to translate into wealth and recognition, she began life in a village of more than 4,000 meters above sea level. In eastern Nepal, she's a member of the Sherpa ethnic community, uh, descended from nomadic Tibetans who are used to living in hostile 
high altitudes. She was born in a cave, she said, breaking into laughter. I don't even know my date of birth. My passport says I'm 48. (laughs) I remember having to walk for hours, sometimes carrying my brothers to school. My pass, uh, let's see, only to be turned away when I got there. At the time, listen to this, girls were not allowed in school. Wow. She is now known as the Everest Queen. And there she is. Wow. What an amazing story. That is incredible. All right. Time to move on to some book stuff, don't you think? We're doing Sherlock Holmes, and uh, what an adventure this has become. It's a murder mystery. I hope you've been following along. If not, uh, you can go back and check out the uh, uh, the first part of this particular chapter from The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, I think we might conclude this one tonight and move on to the next chapter in our next stream. So here we go. Look here, Watson, he said when the cloth was cleared. They've just finished Just sit down in this chair and let me preach to you a little. I I don't quite know what to do, and I should value your advice. Light a cigar and let me expound. Pray, do so. Well now, in considering this case, there are two points about young McCarthy's narrative which struck us both instantly. Although they impressed me in his favor and you against him, One was the fact that his father should, according to his account, cry cooey before seeing him. The other was his singular dying reference to a rat. He mumbled several words, you understand, but that was all that caught the son's ear. Now, from this double point, our research must commence, and we will begin it by presuming that what the lad says is absolutely true. What of this cooey, then? Well, obviously, it could not have been meant for the sun. The sun, as far as he knew, was in Bristol. It was mere chance that he was within earshot. The cooey was meant to attract the attention of whoever it was that he had the appointment with. But cooey is a distinctly Australian cry, and one which is used between Australians. There is a strong presumption that the person whom McCarthy expected to meet at Boscombe Pool was someone who had been in Australia. Well, what of the rat, then? Sherlock Holmes took a folded paper from his pocket and flattened it out on the table. This is a map of the colony of Victoria, he said. I wired to Bristol for it last night. He put his hand over part of the map. What do you read, he asked. A rat, I read. And now, he raised his hand. Ballarat. Quite so. That was the word the man uttered, and of which his son only caught the last two syllables. He was trying to utter the name of his murderer, so-and-so of Ballarat. It's wonderful, I exclaimed. It's obvious. And now, you see, I had narrowed the field down considerably. The possession of a gray garment was a third point, which, 
granting the son's statement to be correct, was a certainty. We have come now out of mere vagueness to define conception of an Australian from Ballarat with a grey cloak. Certainly. And one who was at home in the district, for the pool can only be approached by the farm or by the estate, where strangers could hardly wander. Quite so. Then comes our expedition of today. By an examination of the ground, I gained the trifling details which I gave to that imbecile Lestrade as to the personality of the criminal. But how did you gain them? You know my method. It is founded upon the observance of trifles. His height, I know that you might roughly judge from the length of his stride. His boots, too, might be told from their traces. Ah, yes, they were peculiar boots. But his lameness? The impression of his right foot was always less distinct than his left. He put less weight upon it. Why? Because he limped. He was lame. But his left-handedness? You were struck yourself by the nature of the injury as recorded by the surgeon at the inquest. The blow was struck from immediately behind, and yet was upon the left side. Now how can that be unless it were by a left-handed man? He had stood behind that tree during the interview between the father and the son. He'd even smoked there. I found the ash of a cigar, which, with my special knowledge of tobacco ashes, enabled me to pronounce it as an Indian cigar. I have, as you know, devoted some attention to this, and written a little monograph on the ashes of 140 different varieties of pipe, cigar, and cigarette tobacco. Having found the ash, I then looked and discovered the stump among the moss where he had tossed it. It was an Indian cigar of the variety that are rolled in Rotterdam. And the cigar holder? I could see that the end had not been in his mouth. Therefore, he used a holder. The tip had been cut off, not bitten off, but the cut wasn't a clean one, so I deduced a blunt penknife. Holmes, I said, you have drawn a net round this man from which he cannot escape, and you have saved an innocent human life as truly as if you had cut the cord which he was hanging him. I see the direction in which all this points. The culprit is Mr. John Turner cried the hotel waiter, opening the door of our sitting-room and ushering in a visitor. The man who entered was a strange and impressive figure. His slow, limping step and bowed shoulders gave the appearance of decrepitude, and yet his hard, deep-lined, craggy features and his enormous limbs showed that he was possessed of unusual strength of body and of character. His tangled beard, grizzled hair, and outstanding drooping eyebrows combined to give an air of dignity and power to his appearance. But his face was of ashen white. His lips, the corners of his nostrils, were tinged with a shade of blue. It was clear to me at a glance that he was in the grip of some deadly and chronic disease. Pray, sit down on the sofa said Holmes gently. You had my note? Yes, the lodgekeeper brought it up. 
You said you wished to see me here to avoid scandal. I thought people would talk if I went to the hall. And why did you wish to see me? He looked across at my companion with despair in his weary eyes, as though his question had already been answered. Yes, said Holmes, answering the look rather than the words. It is so. I know all about McCarthy. The old man sank his face in his hands. God help me, he cried, but I would not have let that young man come to harm. I give you my word that I would have spoken out if it went against him at the Aces. I am glad to hear you say so, said Holmes gravely. I would have spoken now had it not been for my dear girl. It would break her heart. Ah, it will break her heart when she hears that I am arrested. It may not come to that, said Holmes. What? I'm no official agent. I understand that it was your daughter who required my presence here, and I am acting in her interests. Young McCarthy must be got off, however. I'm a dying man, said old Turner. I have diabetes for years. My doctor says it's a question of whether I shall live a month. Yet I would rather die under my own roof than in a jail. Holmes sat down at the table with a pen in his hand, a bundle of papers before him. Just tell us the truth, he said. I shall jot down the facts. You'll sign it, and Watson here can witness it. Then I could produce your confession at the last extremity to save young McCarthy. I promise you that I shall not use it unless it is absolutely needed. It's as well, said the old man. It's a question whether I shall live to the asses, or so it matters little to me. But I should wish to spare Alice the shock. Now I'll make things clear to you. It's been a long time in the acting, but it won't take me long to tell. You didn't know this dead man, McCarthy? He was a devil incarnate. I tell you that God keep you out of the clutches of such a man as he. His grip has been upon me these twenty years, and he's blasted my life. I'll tell you first how I came to be in his power. It was in the early sixties at the diggings. I was a young chap then, hot-blooded, reckless, ready to turn my hand at anything. I got among bad companions, took to drink, no luck with my claim, took to the bush, and in a word became what you would call over here a highway robber. There were six of us. We had a wild, free life of it, sticking up a station from time to time or stopping the wagons in the road to the diggings. Black Jack of Ballarat was the name I went under, and our party still remembered in the colony as the Ballarat Gang. One day a gold convoy came down from Ballarat to Melbourne. We lay in wait for it and attacked it. There were six troopers and six of us, so it was a close thing. But we emptied four of their saddles at the first volley. Three of our boys were killed, however, before we got the swag. I put my pistol to the head of the wagon driver, who was this very man, McCarthy. I wished to the Lord that I'd shot him then, but I spared him although I saw his wicked little eyes fixed on my face, as though to remember every feature. 
We got away with the gold, became wealthy men, made our way to England without ever being suspected. There I parted from my old pals, determined to settle down to a quiet, respectable life. I bought this estate, which chanced to be in the market, and I set myself to do a little good with my money, to make up for the way in which I had earned it. I married, too, and though my wife died young, she left my dear little Alice. Even when she was just a baby, her wee hands seemed to lead me down the right path as nothing had ever done. In a word, I turned over a new leaf and did my best to make up for the past. All was going well when McCarthy laid his grip upon me. I'd gone up to town about an investment. I met him in Regent Street with hardly a coat to his back or a boot to his foot. Here we are, Jack, says he, touching me on the arm. We'll be as good as a family to you. There's two of us, me and my son. You can have the keeping of us. If you don't, it's a fine law-abiding country, England, and there is always a policeman within hail. Well, down they came to the West Country, no shaking them off, and there they lived rent-free on my best land ever since. There was no rest for me, no peace, no forgiveness. Turn where I would, there was his cunning, grinning little face at my elbow. It grew worse as Alice grew up for he soon saw I was more afraid of her knowing my past than of the police. Whatever he wanted, he must have, and whatever it was, I gave him without question. Land, money, houses, until at last he asked such a thing that I could not give. He asked for Alice. His son, you see, had grown up, so had my girl, and as I was known to be in weak health, it seemed a fine stroke to him that his lad should step into the whole property. But there I was firm. It would not have his cursed stock mixed with mine. Not that I had any dislike to the lad, but his blood was in him. And that was enough. I stood firm. McCarthy threatened. I braved him to do his worst. We were to meet at the pool midway between our houses to talk it over. When I went down there, I found him talking with his son, so I smoked a cigar, waited behind a tree till he should be alone. But as I listened to his talk, all that was black and bitter in me seemed to come uppermost. He was urging his son to marry my daughter with as little regard for what she might think as if she were a slut off the streets. It drove me mad to think that I and all that I held most dear should be in the power of a man such as this. Could I not snap the bond? I am already a dying and desperate man. Though clear of mind and fairly strong of limb, I, I knew that my own fate was sealed. But my memory of my little girl both could be saved if I could but silence that foul tongue. I did it, Mr. Holmes. I would do it again. Deeply as I have sinned, I have led a life of martyrdom to atone for it. But that my girl should be entangled in the same meshes withheld me was more than I could suffer. I struck him down with no more compunction than if he had been some foul and a venomous beast. His cry brought back his son, but I'd gained the cover of the wood, though I was forced to go back and fetch the cloak which I dropped from my flight. That is the true story, gentlemen, of all that occurred. Well, 
It is not for me to judge you, said Holmes, as the old man signed the statement which had been drawn out. I pray that we never be exposed to such a temptation. I pray not, sir. And what do you intend to do? Well, in view of your health, nothing. You are yourself aware you'll soon have to answer for your deed at a higher court. I'll keep your confession, and if McCarthy is condemned, I shall be forced to use it. If not, it shall never be seen by a mortal eye, and your secret, whether you be alive or dead, will be safe with us. Farewell, then, said the old man solemnly. Your own deathbeds, when they come, will be easier for the thought of the peace which you've given to mine. Tottering and shaking in all of his giant frame, he stumbled slowly from the room. God help us, said Holmes, after a long silence. Why does fate play such tricks with poor, helpless worms? I never hear of such a case as this that I do not think of Baxter's words. There, but for the grace of God, goes Sherlock Holmes. James McCarthy was acquitted on the strength of a number of objections which had been drawn out by Holmes and submitted to the defending counsel. Old Turner lived for seven months after our interview, but he is now dead, and there is every prospect that the son and daughter may come to live happily together, in ignorance of the black cloud which rests upon their pasts. Wow! Ha! That was a cool chapter. Coming up, it's number five in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. It's called The Five Orange Pips. And we will have that for you on our next stream coming up. We'll start that chapter on Wednesday night. All right. Wow, we did almost a whole hour tonight. Dang! Cool beans. Thanks for hanging out and uh, following along. Please don't forget, by the way, it's absolutely free to you. Uh, Rumble, Twitch, YouTube, Facebook, wherever you're watching or listening on our podcast, please just click the follow or subscribe button, wherever that might be down here, up there, over there. Uh, it really does. It helps a lot. It's free for you, and uh, it helps the show out. And uh, we appreciate that. All right. I will see you again Wednesday. That's the Jay Sheldon Show. I'm, strangely enough, Jay Sheldon. Good night.